and welcome to Tones and Drones, an ambient music podcast. I'm Jason Miller, and the podcast is produced in the studios of 91.3 KVLU. My guest on this episode is Zero Ohms, the name used by musician Richard Roberts. His music I first ran across in his collaboration with Craig Padilla, who's also been a guest on the podcast, from an album they made together called When the Earth is Far Away. Actually, right now you're listening to the title cut from that album. It was wonderful talking to Richard. We got to talk about several other musical subjects besides um, his uh, ambient uh, styles, other music that has influenced him and has been part of his journey. And uh, it was really great to speak with him. Very fun conversation. I hope that uh, you enjoy it. And um, he is a master of all types of uh, flutes and also um, other woodwind instruments. And he's also known to play the wind-controlled synthesizers, which he'll talk about in the interview also. We'll be featuring some selections from his uh, recent album and uh, also some other ones interspersed as we do here on Tones and Drones. So I hope that uh, you enjoy my conversation with Richard Roberts, also known as Zero Ohms, here on Tones and Drones. Yeah. Nice hear a little bass flute in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I figured that was the uh, best thing to do a mic check with since I had it handy. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to talk to you and good to meet you from Audio Tones and Drones here. Yeah, good to meet you. I, uh, I'm looking forward to this. Oh, awesome. I, uh, I'm in a different studio right now, uh, not in my office studio. I'm in a studio in our communications building because we have a, a meeting a little bit later with one of our volunteers. And so I, uh, I appreciate your, um, your CD and, and, and uh, DVD collection behind you there because mine is behind me usually in my office in the background. But here I just got to. <laughs> um, I had one person that was, I was on a Zoom meeting with 
was actually going through my DVD collection and he goes, oh, you've got the prisoner up there. You, you got the whole series of the prisoner and uh, which was a, a late 1960s, uh, uh, very psychedelic spy drama. Okay. And uh, starred Patrick McGowan and it's, it's a real mind bending uh, series. And I mean, he was going through my whole collection and he goes, oh, you, you're a fan of Firefly. I see you got Firefly. And um, I was going, um, yeah, what were we going to talk about today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, we canceled Hulu and I'm going to get Firefly on DVD because I have Serenity, mm -hmm. but I don't have Firefly. And, and now I need it because it's on Hulu. So I want to own it. I like to own it, you know? I Well, same thing here. I got there's Firefly right there. Boom. And, uh, you know, I don't like Serenity. Um, it doesn't fit with Firefly. There's, there's none of the, none of the, uh, the humor. There's very little of the camaraderie amongst the characters. Um, the having this one evil bad guy that they were going against, um, you, you almost never saw that in the series. I liked how it was ambiguous with the Alliance, how you, it was just. Yeah, it was it was there, but you usually didn't see it. And which led me to believe that uh, Malcolm was just good at avoiding it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, exactly. Part of the run. Yeah, I see what you mean. I felt that way, too. They had a bigger budget and they felt like they had to use it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see, he, uh, uh, what's his name? The guy that did it had had all oh, yeah. the success of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer in between the two. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know it's got to be a balancing act. And mm -hmm. and when they killed off uh, Wash and, and Serenity, you know, I, that was kind of, I, I, sometimes I know somebody's got to die, right? I mean, it, it, it's that thing, but that was, that was kind of, that was tough, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, I, I have the um, the comic book series, A Leaf on the Wind, which is six books that take place about six months after uh, Serenity. Oh, and, and it's pretty good series. They oh. made several graphic novels and that's the only one I have. I'd like to read like The Shepherd's Tale and stuff like that. And they even did one in 2020 where they were supposedly went back to the earth that was. But I just have that one. But anyway, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good uh, series that takes place. Uh, about six months after uh, I'll, I'll have to look into that because uh, like i said i'll the original took me a while to get into uh i had friends that kept saying oh you know you got to get into this and i watched one or two of them and i didn't like the cowboy vibe the old west vibe of it and yeah. finally one friend said no richard you've got to watch them in order and i said you mean it's a it's and he said, yeah, it's one big story arc. Yeah. And he said each each in episode builds on the last one. And you have to watch them in order. And once I did that, I was hooked. Yeah. I, I, was, I was really hooked. Uh, is this lighting okay for you? I'm Oh, sure. We're just using the audio. I'm okay. Yeah. Audio. So yeah, well, it was the same. It was the same for me. It was the first series that I streamed on Netflix. Because I was getting the DVDs because the same thing when it was running on Fox, I was hearing people talk about it. I was seeing the commercials. 
uh, probably watching, I don't know, Simpsons or something, right? And uh, the same thing. And then they showed, I found out later, they showed episode two first. So yeah. you didn't get yeah. that epic battle episode. Yeah, and you school. didn't understand the revolution or the failure of the revolution, nothing of that. Yeah, mm. that was, uh, that was, that was criminals, what that was. I mean, you, you, you can't shoot a series in the foot any worse than that. Yeah, you can't because like with Malcolm, you don't see how he was like very hopeful. He was religious, mm-hmm. you know, and if so somebody missed that episode and they just jumped in, they are really kind of selling themselves short on, on getting the full effect. But I mean, to this day, I mean, there's so many great lines in that thing, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just, there's so many that just that stick with you. You know, I always like the one where, um, where it's the one where he's defending uh Inara's honor and he did the sword fight oh and, like, yes. the, guy, the guy smarts mouth to him and he's like he goes you know great man shows shows uh you know uh shows mercy and then the guy smarts up he, he sits him he goes i'm a good man hits him again he goes i'm all right you know Stabs him again. <laughs> that's always, like, sometimes that's life's that way you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey i heard an interview with the dalai lama and uh, they were talking about the, the law of ahimsa, of doing no harm to animals. Mm-hmm. And the interviewer said, oh, come on, if a mosquito landed on you and, and bit you right now, what would you do? And the Dalai Lama said, well, I would say, okay, you can have a little blood, now go away. And the interviewer said, and if he came back and bit you again, he would, the Dalai Lama said, he would go, and then the and he said if he came back again the Dalai Lama said <laughs> so <laughs> you know there are limits even to guys like the Dalai Lama <laughs> exactly yeah exactly the preacher says in that episode uh you know I heard your your god doesn't like to kill and he says but he's fuzzy on kneecaps kneecaps <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you do know in that whole series, when they're cussing in the, in the Chinese language, mm-hmm. that's real. They're actually really cussing in Chinese. Wow. They got that around. They, they did an end run around the uh, censors. That's they, incredible. To get cussing on, on, on the air. <laughs> that is incredible, isn't it? Isn't that funny? Yeah, I didn't know how. how uh, I looked up one word that was like, damn. But I didn't know they were going full on with the rest of the, the whole series, every one of them. So I understand. Yeah, that's... they just they just they just gambled on nobody speaking Chinese. And... Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You know, and and that's interesting too because, like, you know, a lot of the older films, American films, the language was so sometimes they would use such nasty language without profanity. So many movies back mm. in the day, they would just say these terrible things to people. And you go, wow. And it's like it, it when you look at it from writing standpoint, it takes so much more, uh, you know, thought to write something, you know, harsh, but not using profanity uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and so many different films over the years. Sweet Smell of Success was one, you know, and, and they oh, talk so, oh, gosh, yes. They uh, talk so uh, mean, you know. Well, and, and, and the, the lines had to have that oily insidiousness to them. So that when he delivered them, 
there was it's like you 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 wouldn't see the sneer but you could hear the sneer in the words yeah that's that takes real writing skill yeah you're right that takes a lot of uh uh forethought and um uh, yeah comedy is the same way if you're putting funny lines in uh the the, uh, casablanca is a is a good example there are so many joke lines in casablanca that after a while they just start slipping by you but some they're just incredibly funny it's like uh when the chief of police is asking uh uh humphrey bogart why he couldn't go back to the to the united states and one of the things he says well did you run away with the senator's wife uh, and he said then he says well i'd like to think that you killed a man that it's the romantic in me <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> yeah yeah it, in a movie it's clever it's like clever wit it's like different even than dry wit it's just like yeah yeah to make it, you think yeah yeah exactly and you don't get a lot of that much anymore unfortunately Mm-mm. no you, you you don't it's the the humor is kind of it's if it's not just like you know like fart humor it's it's kind of kind of glib kind of humor mm-hmm. you know kind of like the marvel movies kind of glib comments you know and stuff and yeah you know, and, and and you know well i'm a big fan of the three stooges so I, i'm i'm up for a pie in the face just any time you know <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah sure sure and i, I like the marx brothers too where Gosh, yes. you know it's like a, a joke a second mm. and and uh and then self-referential jokes you know i always liked how they did that it, there's there's one i i don't know if it's animal crackers it's the one where they have the the art sale the the, the they got the art fancy art lady and there's just that great line where where Groucho and I mean uh and and Chico and uh and Harpo run into this one guy and they say something like like uh, he's posing as an art critic and he says aren't you like the the fish salesman who made you the fish salesman and then he wrote he says back like who made you Italian uh-huh. and I always like that inside you know we say meta now right yeah yeah you know but like they were meta before meta was the thing. There's a great line in, in one of them uh, where where Chico was was uh, was trying to pronounce something and his and the Italian accent was getting in the way <laughs> and um, and then Groucho said something to him like well how long have you been Italian and Chico goes about as long as you've been wearing that mustache. <laughs> there, oh, that's a great one. Oh, that's so great. Oh, I love uh, the play on there. <laughs> yeah, there. I mean, and no mercy. <laughs> I yeah. mean, and you can tell these guys were really brothers because that's what brothers do. I mean, only really close friends ever get to you know taking chunks out of each other that way. Yeah, in, in humor and uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, I have an appreciation of that. But, yeah, uh, exactly. And being able, being able to like have their own inside jokes that they work into their movies that mm-hmm. you just have to kind of uh, laugh at the parts you laugh at and yeah. appreciate the rest. And it's like with the, like with sci-fi, like, you know, it, it's interesting that 
the first album, the first album that I heard you play on was when the earth was far away with Craig Padilla. Oh, and and Craig and I spoke about that album on one of his his trips on the podcast because he's been on he this podcast is open to everybody return, and we talked about that, and um, I really I really liked what you added to that, and then the concept too, you know, the concept is like you're way out there looking back, you know, I I, I love those pictures. I saw one just on Instagram the other day on one of those space ones where they show Saturn and the rings, and then this is Earth, this little dot, and yeah. then the pale blue dot. Uh, Carl Sagan thing the, and the, that concept of being far away yeah the, the proportions and you know music is all about proportions about ratios of frequency and sound mm-hmm. so uh, uh, I really find those really hard proportions the, the one where pale blue dot and you know and Jupiter here is uh, uh, absolutely fascinates me because the proportions are still in place. The things that we find pleasing and pleasant are, you know, well, in, in music, it's whole number ratios, mm. you know, one to two, two to three. You never get a two to 4.5. Right. You know, you never get the, 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 the fractions. It's always whole numbers. And uh, yeah, when the earth is far away, as a matter of fact, you know, we were talking about movies. Uh, that came from the, uh, a, a reference to a movie called A Guy Named Joe. Hmm. Uh, Spencer Tracy, Irene Dunn movie uh, made during the war, during World War II. And it was... Like many of the Hollywood movies of that era, it was a uh, an enlistment uh, promotional uh, vehicle. Okay, and they were they were showing uh, in the movie Spencer Tracy gets killed right off, and he spends the rest of the movie as a ghost helping train other pilots. Okay, and he. Uh, he gets into doing some things that are, are wasting his spirit because he's doing them for his own interest, his own self. And uh, the boss pulls him up, up in one of the lower levels of heaven. And the boss is played by Lionel Barrymore. Sure. And he was, he was saying, I don't think you understand the work we're doing here. And, and Spencer Tracy says, oh, yeah, I do. And he said, no. He said, uh, uh, you know, anything you do now for yourself is a waste of spirit. And then he said, you just don't get it. And he said, yeah, boss, I think I do. And he's and the boss said, well, let me put it this way. Have you ever been alone in your airplane, say, 20,000 feet over the ocean at night? And Spencer Tracy says, well, yeah, he said. Then Lionel Barrymore leans in and whispers, did you ever hear music up there? Hmm. And Spencer Tracy says, well, maybe. And and Lionel Barrymore goes, no, no, no. He says, if you'd heard it, you'd remember it. He says, it's the music that a man's spirit sings to his heart when the earth is far away and there isn't any more fear. Hmm. 
and that's where when the earth is far away came from wow hmm that's a lot to think about like that where there's no fear in the far away because you you would the first thing you might think if you if you thought about that um had an existential moment is that it would be terrifying you know it is when the individual human soul confronts the void yeah it, yeah. it it's it's terrifying and yet and yet it's freedom yeah and it's uh it's it's yeah it's a big big step for the individual to take into that void yeah mm. uh, the 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 old folk singer melanie had a line in one of her songs that said uh there comes a point where you have to leap off the edge just to see whether you fall or fly yeah and that and that's it and yeah and space travel is all about that i mean you know it's like one of the uh, early astronauts said uh somebody was asking him well what wasn't he proud to be where he was and he says actually i'm sitting on top of a big thermos model full of explosives all manufactured at lowest bid <laughs> he said no i'm not not real comfortable about it <laughs> but you it, it is uh, it's it is a leap of faith i mean you really have to trust something yeah in yourself and other people or something you it, it it's not something that you because you go into it without enough information i heard yeah. somebody somebody said one time that wisdom was the information that you needed five minutes ago for the decision you had to make then mm. Mm. And, you know it's, it's the information you wished you had five minutes ago yeah, yeah <laughs> so that that's that's more immediate than hindsight 2020 you know mm. more immediate right yeah it's yeah. uh because five minutes you could still be in whatever the crisis is exactly i mean you know your 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 uh, hindquarters could still be in the sling so to speak yeah it, when you look at when you look at the the void like that whatever whatever it is and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, television. I have a friend that's a professor and here here at the college in film, and he's writing on um, the void, the vortex, the black hole, mm. the portal, and he's yeah. exploring that in a lot of different films and current television programs. And there's something to it. And and, and you know, Steve Roach has a album called "The Magnificent Void," a new space yeah. album, and yeah. looking at it that way, and then. And then there's also like being in space too. I, I can't remember the name of the gentleman. I don't know if it was who was out. Was it Ed White who was on the who was taking the spacewalk and he didn't want to come back in and and it was the space euphoria and the overview effect and everything like that I that believe, takes I over. believe you're right. I believe yeah. it was Ed White. Yeah. And so then that overview effect or the space of euphoria, which was always kind of connected me to like other things I've heard, like the rapture of the deep and stuff like that, but. But but like so there's that aspect of letting go, that freedom of I'm here and I'm seeing everything above me and it's just wonderful and floating. And so it doesn't mean that the portal and the vortex and the black hole or whatever is 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 has to be scary. But 
you know, anyway, he's been exploring that. And I mean, gosh, I mean, in music, there's sometimes you go into that too, especially the music that, that we're talking about, you know, and, well, um, well, look at science fiction, every science fiction series had a, what I used to call a Zod episode, a zone of darkness, a Z-O-D. Every, every series had at least one episode involving a void, a, a, a place of absolute nothingness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of uh, uh, spiritual disciplines really focus on that. Sure. Uh, 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 Zen Buddhism it has it as a as a main feature. You know, there's this this nothingness. Um, well, I don't. My own personal beliefs, I wasn't going to get into, but I really believe that whatever the the great maker of our individual selves is wanting us to grow up to be like it. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that brings out the most godlike qualities in us is facing that void. Mm. Because you have to pull something up deep from inside yourself. You know, your, your, your tool belt doesn't help you. Your, your, your technology doesn't help you. Mm. I mean, all you've got is what you can pull up out of your own heart. Mm-hmm. And that connects to music exactly. When, yeah. when I'm going to create a piece, and, and you were talking about Craig Padilla. Craig and I have talked about this a lot. When you're, when you're creating a piece, that's all you've got. Now, you know, you, you get the best instruments that you can, you get the best uh, uh, training and capabilities. And this is where my name, Zero Ohms, comes from. It's an electrical term, uh, electrical engineering term that means no resistance. Okay. And the whole idea is that I, the me-ness, stands out of the way of this, whatever it is, this this conduit of inspiration that mm-hmm. comes through. So I try not to color it. I try not to limit it. I try not to have any effect on it whatsoever. And, and there are a lot of spiritual disciplines that talk about standing out of your own way. The, the interplay between spiritual discipline and musical discipline uh, 
never fails to absolutely amaze me. Uh, the two are identical. And I'm not going to say that musicians are like monks. Now we're not, but there is a there is a Jedi-like quality to the discipline. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, so, sorry to. No, I like that. What Jedi qualities do you see to it? There's a lot. There's no attachment. There's. Mm -hmm. The lack of fear, there's your focus becomes your reality. It's a lot. Yeah. And, and basically, our minds are creative tools. That, that, that is, seems to be another godlike quality that we're forced into. We create. Yeah, we create. Yeah. And we create, and this is uncomfortable to a lot of people, but a lot of times we create the situation that we find ourselves in that we start crying out to a god to get us out of it's true and uh, true. uh mm -hmm. but but uh decisions choices yeah options yeah. and of course driven by. The, the whole thing is to is to learn to make a better choice next time based mm -hmm. on what you experienced <laughs> this time exactly learning from it uh-huh <laughs> and music and that fits into music very well you know if you're going from an e flat to an a sharp uh well sometimes that's okay mm -hmm. but a lot of times it's better to go to an a flat from yeah. an e flat you know it just it just sounds better that's true yeah you're working off of your uh you're working off of your uh your your uh your perfect intervals <laughs> <laughs> yeah again proportions again proportions. Proportions. yeah the distance between the interval intervals mm -hmm. yeah that's one of the freeing things about ambient music that i ran into is that you didn't have to think in chord progressions you could think in in mode yeah. scales and you could think in intervals you could think in the the intervals that are dissonant the intervals that are heroic the intervals that are pastoral you could just play with those a major sixth or or a sharp nine or, you know, and that was something that was really fascinating for me because if you're, if you're sometime, if you're going that way and you're writing a melody, you might not do that. You might write melody within the confines of the chords that you have. But if you take that away and you're able to do that, then you start thinking about intervals that you might not have ever thought about doing. They were maybe too hard to sing or whatever it is. You yeah. Know? Uh, you run into uh, artists like, uh, well, Paul Simon does that some, but Sting does it also. He writes his melodies in modes, not in the scale, but in the, in the old Greek mode. Mm. And that's why that's why you don't find anybody who sounds like Sting. Mm. You don't see another artist like that. Uh, uh, you know, Indian music. Uh, which I, I play a, a bunch of different uh, Murlis and Bantris from India. They build a melody on a progression of intervals, all based on the bass drone. So it's how far this note is, how far that note is, how far this note is. Where in Western music, we look at the last note and it's the interval to that last note. Yeah. And and the next note is to this note, and the next note to that is to that note. And uh, 
and you see that that's actually a lot more useful in ambient music also uh where you you got because you can stretch that out you can uh, as steve roach called it time stretch it you can stretch that concept out and the listener's mind picks it up even if it's running over the course of a of a, a 20 or 30 minute piece mm. and can appreciate it and uh, and that's one of the things that will slow down the listener's thinking to almost uh, uh, i love this word uh, turgid pace uh uh robert rich likes to use the term glacial pace <laughs> and uh i really love that because when you do that you're actually putting the listener's mind in the mindset of meditation you're putting them into a state of being as though they had practice meditation for years mm. and they can derive the benefits from it also uh, mm -hmm. just as though they had been uh, uh, practicing meditation for years wow. and all they have to do is listen to the recording wow that's and, that's amazing i mean I, I it's amazing i never i never i never thought about that you're 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 talk about bringing them along mm. you know one of the best to, to have it happen yeah. one of the best spiritual exercises i've ever heard anybody recommend was if you're reading something in your imagination picture the the author sitting there at his typewriter or with his quill pen or whatever mm -hmm. actually putting the words on the paper mm. uh if you're listening to a piece of music uh you know imagine the musician sitting there writing on the manuscript paper or sitting there uh wh whistling the melody into his uh iphone yeah you know see see that in your mind's eye see that moment of creation and you'll drop into exactly what the what that artist has intended in, wow. in the creation wow i'm gonna try and that i've never tried that before it is one of the best spiritual exercises because you really start seeing a whole new level of reality when you do that and somebody uh said one time well won't that spoil everything you appreciate in the in the creation in the music or the book or or whatever the movie and i said no it doesn't it enhances it it enhances it immeasurably i mean how many fans of 2001 a space odyssey enjoy watching the the films and reading the books about how that movie was made yeah i mean basically everyone yeah yeah and so yeah it, it actually enhances the experience of it doesn't uh, doesn't detract yeah why would they why would those um behind the scenes making of things exist if there wasn't this 
desire by certain people to to watch them why would there be music videos in the first place mm. you know or or yeah. or i should say or i should say watching somebody perform i shouldn't say music videos can go off into their own narrative but watching somebody in a studio mm. or or at, in front of a orchestra live or whatever and, and when it, it's playing. because we like watching the individual in the moment of creation mm -hmm. because they're giving us an example because our turn to create something is going to come and it may come as soon as the concert is over and we're on our way home mm -hmm. and it's it's an example of equality we normally ascribe to a supreme deity mm -hmm. yeah but it's a quality that humans exhibit every day yeah you know the the the, the creativity principle but that's why we like to watch live performances and that's one of the things about this new album of Cloudwalker. um it was created that way. Every one of these tracks is an improvisation. Uh, I think a, a better term might be uh, uh, compositions in the moment. Compositions in the moment. Nice. Yeah. And, and that is that is something that took me a long time to get to. big examples of that for me was uh, Frank Zappa. 
early on, he was writing these incredibly complex pieces of rock, and then he kind of got into kind of a, a, a jazz kind of vibe. But it was still things that he was writing down. And it was, I mean, he had to find some of the best musicians coming out of, uh, out of school to play these things. But as he got older, particularly after he got uh, uh, sick, he had uh, cancer of some sort. And he got down to where everything he did was an improvisation. And he, he developed a schedule of recording, just playing all night and recording. And he would turn those recordings over to an engineer the next morning. And while he slept, that engineer would edit them down to something usable. Yeah. And that I, I, that's when I really started going for uh, uh, a pure improvisational I'm thinking, I had an album that uh, self-released in 2016, 2017, somewhere in there. It was called Inside. And it's a monstrous album. Uh, uh, it's like four hours and 45 minutes long. And all the pieces are, uh, well, they're all done on, uh, uh, wind controlled synthesizer. Okay. okay. There were no flutes. Uh, the reason being, at that time, uh, I was taking care of both of my parents. They uh, they both had dementia, and the, it had gotten to the point where they were wandering around at night. And used to, uh, I would, after I got them to bed, I would go into my studio about midnight, and I would record but when they started getting up in the middle of the night and wandering around they would always come in and spoil the recording and so i had to record something that didn't involve opening a microphone mm -hmm. and that that album like i said is is four hours and and three quarters long all of those pieces are improvisations. All of them were created, even, <clears throat> even to the point they sounded overdubbed. In that album, they were not. It was, it was essentially what I could have played live. But, um, and that, that's really what really kind of got me into this idea of, of, of compositions in the moment that, um, there's a beauty to it, uh, and I'm getting along in years. I'm, I'm not, I'm not like Frank Zappa. I'm not suffering from cancer, or at least not that I'm aware of. But uh, I do find myself wanting to complete things and not leave them hanging. Where mm -hmm. with a, a a more written out or planned out composition. You know, you can hit it a lick and then break off and maybe come back to it two or three months later. Sure. And I'm getting where I don't appreciate that anymore. I want to let's go on and make something beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then release it out into the world. Well, and yeah, yeah. Uh, 
it's uh, COVID made that really hard because we were all stuck at home. Mm. Now that was wonderful for Fender guitars. They had one of the biggest years they've ever had. <laughs> yeah. But uh, for, for the, uh, <laughs> For the elderly like myself, <laughs> who already have our instruments, it put us into the studio and wouldn't let us out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I turned around and in two years I had five albums. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I remember I did this one time before around 99, 2000. I had a, a, a period where I did three albums in 18 months. And I, I told my friend, I said, if I ever, if I ever try to do that again, would you please just shoot me? <laughs> and here I've done even better, uh, you know, done even more in less time with what seemed to be less effort. <laughs> wow. But um, I don't know. There's, this the there should be some advantage for getting old, but mostly there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting more prolific in a way. Yeah, yeah. Based it, on so like but just like step stepping back into like your process before, like were were you writing things out, sketching things out a lot more then? Were 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 whenever you were putting together albums or when you were collaborating with someone? I did. Um, well, 50 years ago, I was in a prog rock band. Okay. And we were, we were writing our own material, but we were also doing, you know, Jethro Tull, Moody Blues, uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. We were trying to do yes, but I wasn't quite a good enough vocalist to even sing harmonies. So <laughs> yes, was a little bit of a stretch, but, uh, uh, and so there was a lot more planning. Uh, also, when you're in a band, you got other guys wanting to know well, what will I do when you you're doing that. Yeah. So there was more planning, uh, and I went from that into, uh, and I'd come out of that. Uh, I'd come into the prog rock out of folk music, believe it or not, um, wow. uh, protesting the Vietnam War and things like that. But I went out into, from, from the prog rock, I went into a, kind of an experimental phase of a combination of folk and jazz. Okay. Sure. And again, we were still in the song format. Mm -hmm. And the song format gives you uh, the, well, the format, it's, 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 uh, uh, verses and choruses, basically. Verses, choruses, middle eight. Yeah. And so you kind of know where the composition is going to go. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of have a, a, there's kind of a roadmap already out. And kind of already kind of see what, and kind of maybe what you need. Like, do you need a bridge? You don't need a bridge. Yeah. Uh, you know, you got these little, these little, do we need to do you need to take the excitement down a level or does it need to go up here? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because oh. you're trying to really hold people's attention, yes. like grab them all the way through, not let them have them drift. Just they're locked into that song when it's on. Yeah. And 
I, uh, of course, now I, I got into yoga and meditation when I was 13. So I've been, I've been oh, wow. meditating and doing spiritual exercises, you know, literally since then. What type of yoga did you start to explore? Uh, Hatha yoga. Hatha. Mm -hmm. uh, and I moved on to, from there to Pranayama yoga, which is breath control, which being mm -hmm. a wind player, I was, that was a natural. Sure. Uh, and moved from there into Raja's yoga. Um, and I ran into uh, a former Tibetan monk down in Florida when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And he, he really boosted me into some really more advanced meditation and, and contemplation techniques. He, he was a real advocate of going with contemplation rather than meditation but anyway so uh, no, i was just curious about that what is that what the verses what are the what is the differences between that versus meditation versus contemplation uh meditation tends to be uh non meditation is all within itself and there is no action involved in the process mm -hmm. contemplation is a is more of a yin yang thing you go inward and have a meditative experience but then you take what you learn in that experience and you have to go out into your outer life and apply what you've learned okay it's like the difference between ac and dc electricity Meditation is like DC, okay. Where where contemplation is more like AC, and yeah. you know AC power travels much further sure. than than DC does. Sure. And uh, but one of the things that got me into um, was uh, uh, a flute player by the name of Paul Horn. Sure, I've heard his music. I actually saw Paul Horn play live in 1970 with Donovan. I was a okay. I was I was a folky and so I was a I was a fan of Donovan. Sure. And uh, Donovan's uh, flute player was sick by that time, and his good friend and uh, uh, a fellow uh, uh, student of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sat in on flutes in this concert and I went out the next day and bought uh, a really good quality uh, uh, recorder which I still have nice and uh, and then a few years after that I acquired a flute but Paul Horn had a a series of albums that were called the inside series one he recorded inside the Taj Mahal okay which is a fascinating space because the Taj Mahal has a reverb decay of 43 seconds. That's it's incredible. I've, I've done a couple things in here at the Stuart Dempster in the cistern up in the Northwest. I just learned of a place from a flute player playing in the tank in, uh -huh. in, in, in Colorado, Sherry Fenzer. Uh -huh. Okay. So, wow. Okay. So that's, that's a serious that's a serious loop over right there. Yeah. 46 and, seconds. 
43 seconds. 43 seconds. Okay. Okay. But the album of his that got me was Inside the Great Pyramid. Okay. Now, the, all the different air chambers in the Great Pyramid result in a 7.25 second delay, not reverberation, but okay. delay. Actual repeated. Phrase. Yeah. Okay. And, and um, that album I started listening to and my, my uh, jazz folk band, uh, everybody was drifting apart, you know, and so I finally went out solo playing my version of the inside, the Taj Mahal, uh, I mean, the inside the, uh, the, the Great Pyramid recordings. Okay. And that's what got me into it. Uh, I was never a follower of the Maharishi like uh, Paul Horn uh, was. Okay. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but like I said, I I'd met this old Tibetan and I, I was following the path he kind of put me on. So anyway, um, that's what got me into compositions in the moment. That's what got me into the total improvisation of being able to hold the listener's attention in that rapture, if you will, yeah. without having anything planned. And that's where I started getting the concept of zero ohms from, this whole idea of standing out of my own way because it didn't work otherwise. If I got in the way, I'd have to go back and start planning. I'd have to start going back to something like a song format or some sort of format. Uh, and I started uh, playing in coffee houses and vegetarian restaurants and pretty much all over the Southeast. And, okay. and my first recordings were where I was simply laying down what I had, uh, the, the act I had worked up in the coffee houses. And it had and it had good success with and it just it just snowballed from there. Um, uh, you know, I mean, one one thing that that worked, um, I just gotten my bass flute for a couple of years earlier and uh, I was in a cabin I had built for my ex wife in uh, in the mountains over in East uh, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, we had the, the cabin weathered in, but we didn't have any electricity to it yet. So I was sitting in there with my old DAT recorder. I don't, uh, you're, you're a young man. You may not remember DAT recorders. I do remember the DAT recorder, the digital audio tape. Yes. It was, a, it was a great idea and a terrible idea at the same time. Uh, yeah, well, I'm. It was my first field recorder, and so yeah. I got that in '86. Now they were pretty big. The ones I saw were pretty big units, like pretty. Well, I I had a a, a friend who was living in Hawaii and was able to get me a unit from Japan that wasn't available in this country, mm. and it was about the size of a like a three or four DVD set. Okay. About the size of like a family Bible. 
Oh, well, that's that's small compared to some of the bigger rack units. Yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, he was able to get it through the gray market for me, and um, and I used that for years and years and years. And uh, uh, oh, that technology, yeah. Well, it was a, it was interesting because I mean, for people that don't know what it is, the tape that went in there looked like a little like a little uh, tape for like your video camera. You know, it was like a little you yeah. know, like video eight to the, the high eight. That's exactly about you know what I mean. That's what it looked like. And, but it was recording digitally. I mean, it was, it was, you know, compact and. But I was recording, uh, I was recording down to it and I had to do everything live because I didn't have any mixing board. I had no editing abilities. So you just had to uh, layer live. Layer. Yeah. You were yeah. overdubbing on it. Yeah. I had a sequencer that I would play my background washes into mm -hmm. so that I had that, but I had solo on top of it uh, live. And what were you using for your backgrounds? What were your uh, backgrounds consisting of? Uh, a Yamaha TX81Z controlled okay. by a Yamaha w WX5 controller. Okay. And that is a, was that, is that a wind, is that a wind synth? That's, yeah, that's a wind controller. It looks kind of like, uh, uh, if you think of uh, what an electric clarinet might look like, you, you're kind of in the right. Sure. I remember the e, the EWI and stuff, you know, yeah. and, and, yeah. and that. And, and um, I have a DX7, but I don't have the controller for it, but I've seen the controller for the DX7. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so yeah. that's what I was laying it down, the backgrounds down with. And I was also... Uh, I had transferred a lot of my DAT. I had the ability to burn uh, a, a CD from the DAT. The DAT, sure. Mm -hmm. So I, I took my field recordings and would put them on a CD or CDR. Mm -hmm. And I would play them, them live over the sequencer firing and then solo on top of all of that. Okay. okay. And it was like 1920s recording. If you made a mistake, you had to play the whole song all over again. <laughs> and send it from the horn. <laughs> well, yeah. And in yeah. the yeah. mix, and the mix was how close you were to the microphone. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, sure. No, no, no. Yeah, they had to strategic. You see the old pictures of they got the, the banjo kind of far back and the tuba. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and, and everybody's kind of leaning in. And the clarinet gets a step up and a step back. And, yeah. yeah, as best yeah. they could. Yeah. And, uh, and I love the music from the 20s and the 30s, by the way. I, uh, um, yeah, me too. I, I digress. Yeah, me too. No, we could go on a whole thing by the hot fives and hot sevens. and, and oh, oh, yeah. And Wingy Manone and his orchestra. Wingy Manone and early Fletcher Henderson stuff from the 20s. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Big yeah, spider sure even spider yeah. back sure and and and, and, <laughs> and that crew of 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 uh, of the the chicago guys yeah yeah uh I, I will digress a little further uh one of my favorites out of that that scene was a trombone player uh by the name of uh jack teagarden sure jack teagarden what a great what a great uh voice he had and oh, i yeah. love his stuff with louis armstrong later i like their that and and Jack T. Garden, there's 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 there, there's a there's a, a D.A. Pinbaker documentary, Jazz on a Summer Day, where, <sighs> where they perform together. They perform oh, together. 
and 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 it's so fun them singing rocking chair that I'll, I love when they sing rocking chair because Louis makes jokes. He's like gonna tan my hide, and Louis goes, "My hide's already tan," and they make these jokes. And, and I'm, I'm writing this down: jazz on the summer. Jazz day. on a summer day, 1958 Newport Festival. D. A. Pinbaker, 16 millimeter. It's beautiful yeah. because not only does Pinbaker shoot the festival, he shoots the yacht, the yacht competition going off at the same time. He shoots. The, the town you see Chico Hamilton and them practicing it's really it's brilliant you've got Chuck Berry for some reason you've got Mahalia Jackson the Columbia artist wouldn't agree contractually so you don't have Miles and Duke Ellington but yeah. but Jack Teagard and Louis Armstrong set together is is just heartwarming well let, let me tell you um, when I was playing at one, at one uh, vegetarian cafe a reporter from the local newspaper saw me on a Sunday afternoon, took my picture, put it in the paper, and I got a call from a woman who said her husband had was in the Air Force and had brought her a flute from Turkey. He had passed away. She was downsizing, and she said, I saw that you play a lot of different flutes. Would you like to have this flute? Mm -hmm. and I said well of course and I went over and talked to her and would you know it her second husband was Jack Teagarden wow <laughs> wow told me that and I yeah. just about had to get up off the floor <laughs> wow what what recording were you going to talk mention about him what was something what's one of his that locks in for you uh, well, there's a, a song when he was with the Wingy Minone Orchestra that was called Take a Note. Okay, take a and note. There's a line in the, in the song that says, I'm not a liar. It's one octave higher, but this is that note. <laughs> take a note. So it's Tea Garden with Wingy. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, there's two or three versions of this song that they did. And one of the last takes they did now, you got to remember, now, Wingy Manone was called Wingy because he only had one hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he only had three fingers on that hand. Oh, wow. So, he, so oh, trumpet was the only thing he could play. Right. And uh, in the middle of it, uh, Jack Teagarden had a, a section where he was, was talking. And he came up and he said, now, say Wingy. So, say, I, I know a, a trumpet player down home in new orleans it couldn't play but three notes because he only had three fingers <laughs> and wingy says say you only know three notes jack and you could hear the gears turning in jack's head he's the one that pays me and jack goes oh yeah and, and Wingy <laughs> says well let's hear some of them <laughs> <laughs> but anyway yeah, I, that's I, great. There's such great comedy and rapport. That's awesome. No, I, Jack T. Gardens is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and his his little brother was a pretty good cornet player, uh, Charlie T. Garden. Yeah, Charlie T. Garden. Yeah, I haven't thought about him, too. Charlie T. Garden. Yeah, their report that you'll like the Louis Armstrong. I need I'm going to check that song out for sure. You'll like the Louis Armstrong because when they're singing rock and share the Hoagie Carmichael, there's there's even a joke where he says, oh, dear Aunt Heaven. Uh, aunt harriet and then the, his line is like i knew her well and then like louis goes not that well like they, they, <laughs> they, they play on they play on it and stuff like that and it's just 
but it's just them, you know, it just in the, you know, playing their horns and singing. And, you know, I, I Jack T Garden's trumpet when he was with the all-stars was such a great foil uh, for Louis Armstrong, you mm. know, like them being there on that front line was just, is just incredible interplay, you know? Yeah. yeah he's uh, uh yeah. Fabulous. Fabulous. And uh, yeah, but, but anyway, it, you know, get, to get back to it, that's, uh, that's how this whole thing of the, of the improv came about in my music and, and the thing about this new album, Cloudwalker and the Ascent, it's it's been pared down even further. It's still compositions in the moment, mm-hmm. but now all of the backgrounds, with a couple of exceptions, uh, are simply effects that are on what I'm improvising. The, the track that I'm improvising on. Um, and so there's a randomness to them. Mm-hmm. And, yet the, and yet they sound very, very planned. So you're playing, you're playing through effects and capturing the effects felt like a post situation. Uh, exactly. I'm playing, okay. playing with them live. And okay. it was, uh, I remember when, uh, Todd Rundgren was producing a, a band from the 80s called XTC. He mm-hmm, produced sure. one album for them. Yeah. And he recommended using an effect and recording with it, uh, uh, going straight through. And everybody in the band was saying, oh, no, wait a minute. What if we change our minds? It's true. About the effect. And Todd said, well, this way, we don't have to change our minds. Because you can't. Because you can't. Yeah. And I was yeah. kind of applying that same sort of uh, of thing to it, and it pulled it off. Now, there's a couple of uh, of the tracks have wind backgrounds where I, I did that separately, and that was that was dubbed in. But uh, all the rest of it is uh, is is live effects. Yeah. And Again, there's a, there's more of that feeling of the creation, yeah. Like you get in a live concert, that of the thing being created right in front of you. Uh, except this would be right in front of your ears instead of your eyes, but nonetheless, yeah. Um, and and compared to earlier stuff it's um the the tracks are shorter uh the pieces are are you know six and seven minutes most of them where usually i'm about twice that long uh uh, in in the past and it's been when i first finished this album i i don't know i just didn't think much of it I, i really didn't think that that it was a very good album uh, I thought it was okay, but, and uh, I usually, ha- I've got about three or four friends whose musical tastes and musical savvy is adequate enough to, for me to trust their, their observations on things. So I usually let these three or four people listen 
to yeah. you know what I've done that I consider to be finished. It's good to have that sounding board that'll give you that well, yeah. they, like constructive criticism. Other, otherwise, you're you're on a blind date with anechoic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you <laughs> get my joke, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> yeah, you just you're going off everything on your end. Yeah, I know you got to have a sounding board. Yeah, well, you know, an anechoic chamber is an absolutely silent chamber with no feedback, no bounce back at all. Bounce back dead. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it reminds me of Curly from the Three Stooges, where he was uh, uh, he was he was dating this very large woman, and uh, or was about to, and somebody said, "Oh, it'd be sort of like a blind date, was it?" And he said, "She ain't blind. She may be a little hard of hearing." <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, and it was Craig Padilla that listened to this album and he went, this is fabulous. This is fantastic. Yeah. And I was kind of asking him, well, well, why? I said, to me, it, it just, uh, you know, to me, I didn't hear anything that was grabbing the listener. Yeah. And, um, and he was the one that talked me into listening to it again with different ears. And and I went back and listened to it, and yeah, it's uh, it's different. It is a logical next step from my previous uh, Spotted Peccary solo release, which was Process of Being. Yeah. This is, uh, yeah, Process of Being was, I was still doing a lot of overdubs, even though I was improvising the overdubs. There's still a lot of creation in the moment, but a lot of editing, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of struggle. That's the other thing about creation in the moment. Uh, you you don't have the struggle. If you stand out of your own way, the creation creates itself and uses the individual only as a conduit.
talking about the process and and also about the you know when you mentioned you mentioned earlier that you know you you have your you have your gear you have your technology um you have your you know means of recording you have your all the different polishes that can be put in there but then you, you know you have your instruments and and you, you utilize a lot of different ones you've got a lot of textural you know instruments to 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 utilize and and everything like that and um how does that selection process goes because it seems like you use it looking at when listing what you use you like to use a lot of different ones on your recordings you like to be able to have they're available um and uh um some of the lower flutes which i i love the sound of the low flutes that they're so beautiful people that haven't heard the lower mm. flutes. um but then also flutes from different cultures and stuff um but uh i i really was fascinated by you know your use of of uh of quite a, a collection of of flutes collection of texturals textures i've been i've been collecting flutes uh when I first started out trying to do my version of Paul Horn's Inside the Great Pyramid Act, I had five flutes. Two of those were recorders. Mm. Uh, I had a glass Japanese shakuhachi, and I had uh, my silver flute, uh, concert flute, and, uh, and I had a, a bass bamboo flute. And I love the different sounds, the different textures, the different uh, temperaments of the different flutes. Um, I'd say a third of my collection, I, I have about 50 or 55 flutes from all over the, the planet. And the uh, I would say a third of them or less are in Western temperament. Okay. Uh, and when they're, when they're outside of that Western temperament, you have to play to it, um, which is, is real easy because synthesizers have tuning knobs on them. Yeah. So you can retune, but you can't, well, some synthesizers do have different temperaments built into them. The, the old Yamaha TX81Z had about a dozen different temperaments built into it. Wow. Um, mm. Sometimes those were helpful. A lot of times they weren't. But uh, um, th that's another reason I, I, I went to the Indian influence of using a, a bass drone. Mm -hmm. in a lot of the uh, earlier stuff uh that's another thing that's missing on this new album there's i don't think i put a single drone on there oh uh everything is just melodic which uh that that's kind of new territory for me <laughs> <laughs> so uh um but yeah it's uh um oh where were we um doing the, the the oh yeah the the uh, uh, amassing my collection yeah sure sure um and it just snowballed and it got to the point where like i said i had 
you know, uh, older ladies seeing my picture in the newspaper and giving me flutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, but it's uh, each each one of the flutes has a story to it. That's the other thing. It's it, it, it's it's like it's like having a t-shirt collection. You can remember just where you bought each one of those t-shirts, you know. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, especially concert stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh let me see here. Especially on the con on the concerts. Well, would it be too much of a digression to go into a story of how I got one flute? No, that'd be great. I, I love stories on instruments. We don't get that enough on this pod. Okay. Um Okay, I told you I had a friend in Hawaii that uh, that got me the uh, the the smaller dat uh, through the gray market. Well, I went out a year or two later because uh, uh, that was when Ronald Reagan deregulated the uh, airlines and the cost of a ticket to Hawaii fell in half. And so I thought, well, I'll take this opportunity and go out. I had somebody to stay with in Hawaii. That was the only way I would make it affordable. Sure. So I went out and um, I had just started my collection. I think at that time I may have had five or six flutes. And uh, so the whole idea was I was going to Hawaii, which is tropical, which has bamboo. I was going out there to buy flutes. It was a, it was a buying trip. And um, it wasn't going real well. Uh, it, was, it was, I could find a lot of tourist toys that were shaped like flutes, but they weren't really serious, uh, you know, uh, instruments as far as, as creating music with them. Right. And so uh, I remember one afternoon, I went to the Bishop Museum in Honolulu and I went around looking and they had some flutes in one of the cases. And I went up to one of the docents and I said, is there anybody here who knows about these flutes? Um, the Hawaiian name of the flute was the Ohehano Ihu. And uh, she said, oh, you, you should have come tomorrow. She said, Uncle Ani comes tomorrow. And I thought, well, I don't know who Uncle Lonnie is, but, uh, you know, I came 5,000 miles. I, I would hope, you know, Uncle Lonnie could come five miles. <laughs> and so uh, uh, <laughs> I had paid the two extra dollars to go to the planetarium show. I love planetariums. Yeah. You know, the first time I went to a planetarium, I wanted to live in a planetarium my whole life. Yeah, me too. And then now you see these people playing live music in them. You're like, wow, next level. Yeah, yeah. right. And um, so I had been all through the museum. It took me like three or four hours. And I was waiting on the planetarium to open. And I walked out into a, they had like a, a real quiet courtyard. And I took my sandals off and, you know, rolled up my jacket, to make a pillow. And, and so I'm, I'm doing a spiritual exercise out there. And I was almost falling asleep from it. And then I don't know if you've ever been almost asleep and had someone speak to you. You actually hear 
reverb and echo on their voice, just like they, they show in some of the films and movies. Sure. That dream echo. It was the docent I had talked to earlier, and she was saying, sir, sir, today is Tuesday. Uncle Ani comes on Wednesday, but today Uncle Ani has come. Sir, are you still interested in the flute? And, you know, and I was going, <clears throat> yes, yeah, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And she walked me through the museum. I mean, it felt like we walked about two blocks, like we were no longer in the museum, but maybe in a house adjacent to it or something. And this uh, Asian woman, we enter this huge bedroom and the woman walks in and she bows real low and she says uncle Lonnie and she literally backs out I mean she backs away and this guy turns around and Jason this could have been the oldest man I have ever seen or met <laughs> And there, you never know, it could have been over 100, right? And he says to me, he said, he goes, this is nose flute. He said, I will get you play nose flute today. You will not go home without you play nose flute. Then he said, you will go home and you will not be able to play nose flute for three, four days. But he <laughs> said, you keep trying, you will play nose flute. And he showed me how. Now, in the Maori tradition, which is the the the, the native uh, Hawaiian or the native South Pacific Islanders, okay, sure. They look at the air coming from the nostril as being cleaner than the air coming from the mouth, because food goes in your mouth, and we all know what happens to food. Sure. So the air coming out of the nose is closer to the mind or the brain or what they call the soul. And so they think it's cleaner. So he shows me how to hold one nostril close, how to position the flute. And we're, we're standing out on the lanai, the, the back porch, if you will, of this, whatever this house is. And it's within sight of the ocean. So we, we're not talking about an expensive house. We are talking about a very, very, very expensive house. And so I'm standing on the, the, the lanai. The ocean breeze is coming up towards the end of the flute here. And I'm going, I can't get it. Yeah. And then... For some reason, I had the idea to turn out of the wind and I turned away from the, the breeze was actually stopping the flute note. And I went. And I already had the vibrato on it and everything. And this old man goes, oh, the flute is yours. <laughs> And I said, no, no, let me, let me buy it. I, 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 and he said, no, that flute is yours. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I insisted he give me another flute and I paid for that flute. 
right the one that he he gave as a matter of fact it's not this flute it was uh here it is it's this this was the one that he said this this flute is yours and uh okay now fast forward I, I, i'm i'm fixing to leave hawaii and come back home and i'm watching a local cable access show are you old enough to remember cable access shows yeah i do i do public, public yeah. access yeah, right. public access yeah and they were talking about some hawaiian words and one of the words they talked about was ani as in uncle ani okay ani means ghost mm. but this is that blue That's the the Hawaiian nose flute, the Ohehano Ihu. Ohehano Ihu. Wow, I didn't know that it had its origins in that in that area. Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. Hey, appropriate for the season. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, and like I said, each each of the flutes has a story. They're not all that good because the funny thing about this whole experience with Uncle Ani is, is this right here. I was doing a spiritual exercise. I was almost asleep when the when the docent young docent woke me up or did she wake me up was yeah. this was this a dream experience yeah if i didn't have the physicality of the of yeah. this to come back from yeah it could have been a ghost experience it could have been a dream experience yeah yeah so like I said, that was uh, that that was mystifying, and, and I have I have longed to get back in touch with that gentleman. But like I said, this was 30, 35 years ago. Yeah. You know, if, and if he made it that far, maybe he couldn't make it to one hundred and fifty. I don't know. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that's true once you get past that yeah, yeah. so uh, but yeah each of the flutes has a story each of them and that one's been that one's and you've recorded with that one and put it in oh gosh yes put it in there yeah I, i've uh it's I, I i love i love the sound of that instrument it's so much like 
Native American instruments, and yet it's not. Yeah, and that's not. Yeah, it uh, it's it's, and there's a lot of uh, uh, legends and stories uh, surrounding the flute. In the Maori traditions themselves, it is a lover's flute. Okay. But a lot of Native American flutes were considered love flutes. Uh, a guy would learn to play the flute if he, you know, couldn't figure out how to talk to girls. Yeah. So he'd play the flute, and that was uh, that was a way of breaking the ice and sort of uh, you know giving him an in with the girls. Yeah. So, I think I think of the I think I talk about old jazz. I think of the the Creole love call. You know, the Duke Ellington. Yeah, and that's what it's about. That's what, exactly what that's about. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's it's fluty sound. It's a flute-led melody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the oldest instruments that we have discovered is a flute, and it was discovered in amongst uh, uh, bones and artifacts from a hunter's camp. And they're thinking this this instrument is about they estimate between twenty eight thousand and thirty five thousand years old. Wow. And uh, they they think that the flute player was a member of the hunting party because if you want a deer to stand still long enough for one of the archers to get an arrow in him. One thing that a deer will stand still for is if you're playing a flute. No. That, so they, they, they believe that these, uh, the, these uh, is that Paleolithic, uh, you know, these Stone Age hunting parties included a flute player. Wow. So. Like a Pied Piper thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I still hadn't been paid for that Hamlin job. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no. I've seen I've seen people sing to sing to livestock and they you know they it grabs their attention. I've never heard that story. It's a fascinating story about the flute early on, the ancient flute. You know, there's a there's a a, a tradition in Scandinavia of singing to cattle that's called kelling. I think it's K-E-L-L-I-N-G, Kelling. And that's where I saw uh, an artist from that area doing it. It was in Scandinavian countries. Yeah, it was yeah. like in yeah, yeah, Norway or something. Yeah. And and it really calms the cows down. I I have lived and worked on a working cattle farm. I I know I know what we're talking about here. <laughs> the uh the owner of the farm was he was very frustrated because I could get the cows to do things that he couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I tried to show him how to play a flute, but I mean, the only way he could carry a tune is if, if he had a boom box. <laughs> <laughs> the only, yeah. The only way he could play music was, was on the radio. <laughs> radio. Yeah. I, uh yeah, I'm an old cowhand from the Rio Grande, right? Um, the uh the uh yeah, well I you know I've with the native lutes I've I've had it explained to me that it's really is about like breathing through it, like breathing through yeah. it, you know, and instead of um 
different aspects of of how you breathing techniques if you're playing a different one that that one if you can just relax and just breathe through it that's got a good starting space and um because it's kind of like a heart instrument you know it's an instrument that that the technically yeah you know, it comes from the heart yes it's it, from the heart yeah the movements of the fingers can be very simplistic if you have just like a pentatonic six whole whatever right navajo you know what i mean but anyway i i and that's a that's a really fascinating hard instrument very you know intuitive to play perhaps yeah. yeah well and one of the things uh i heard miles davis say on an interview one time uh they were asking him about his uh practice discipline mm-hmm. what did he practice how often and so on and he stood there and then before he answered any of the questions, he said, well, I do my most important practicing while I'm asleep. <laughs> and I started looking into that after that. And I found, indeed, I could go to sleep or sometimes do a spiritual exercise and wake up and know how to play a flute that I went to sleep not being able to play. That works. That works. I'm going to tell you it works. Um, now, you know, and I don't think I was doing anything all that exceptional. Now, that's how it feels. Maybe I was, but um, yeah, yeah. You were talking about the uh, the the easy breathing, the 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 uh, Cherokee word for flute translates exactly as a singing stick mm. yeah and uh so yeah it's, the breath yeah matter of fact really interesting with miles though i mean he always was conceptualizing above the rest there was always nuggets from whenever he would speak you know well I, I remember being in 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 uh uh high school band and one of the things that got talked about more than anything else about miles davis was he was the first performer to turn his back to the audience yeah that was a huge thing to the to to us in 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 school band Mm. Yeah. yeah it's interesting that you heard that then it really was. It really was. And of course, he got criticism. And then also, you know, his notion later on when he was kind of evolving in the 70s, where he would leave the stage for the younger players to play, he would yeah. just move himself out of out of that, you know, and stuff. Well, you know, uh, he had the same problem that uh, John Mayall had. If you if you played on one album with John Mayall, then you left the band and started your own band because <laughs> you had you had you had uh, label guys going. Here's your contract, kid. Here's your contract. Right. He couldn't keep a good band together. Sure, everybody everybody went on. Bill Evans, uh, Herbie Hancock, all of them. John Coltrane, John yeah. Lord, Johnny Almond, yeah, yeah, they all and, did. They all, yeah, exactly. And, Mulgrew Miller in the '80s, yeah, they all did. Yeah, and and uh, so I could see where he was getting himself out of the way yeah the training ground kind of yeah and uh you know he that was his way of standing out of his own way standing out of his own way yeah so yeah, yeah. 
turns out I found out after I was already pretty much a, a expert at Native American music. I even even taught it in the arts in the school program back in Memphis. Uh, found out I was a quarter Cherokee. Oh wow! Yeah, my grandfather was uh, was on the Baker rolls, and they considered that full blood Cherokee. So very strange yeah yeah to see that and now the connection to you playing it yeah so yeah very very odd but um yeah any last questions i've enjoyed this by the way yeah me too i'd i'd like to um i'd like to um i'd like to invite you back again uh i'd like to talk some more soon a question to kind of round it up is is that like usually we go out on something you know from from an album too and looking at the new album what is like a particular piece that you would like to to close out of this conversation with um um from uh from uh well i mean you from from anything i mean you from cloudwalker and the ascent on spotted peccary perhaps but but anything you know really that comes to mind i there is a quality about the last track mm -hmm. that I'm doing some of the best playing I've ever done. It sounds like a flute, but it's actually a wind-controlled synthesizer. Okay. And nobody believes that's a wind-controlled synthesizer because I'm I'm playing trills and turns on there so fast that most people don't believe a wind controller can respond that fast. That it would have to be a a uh, an acoustic flute. Sure. And it's, it's actually the wind synthesizer, but it is a flute tone on it. So it's, uh, it's, kind, of, it's kind of a combination of wind oh, I, and flute. Oh, I, I love that stuff where it's so good that it sounds like it's real. Is that Across the Seven Skies? Across the Seven Skies, yes. I think that is a good place to do that. And, um, and uh, Richard, thanks for doing that. It's great to meet you. And... Um, please come back soon. There's so many different areas I had written like notes by and stuff and, and a great, um, uh, a great uh, breath of work to be able to talk about. And, uh, and some of the other, I, I like how we got to talk about some other things too, and kind of get to know each other that, that way and, and, and music plus other things. And I got plenty of notes of some different things to explore too um, uh, in the conversation. And that's always a great takeaway um and and uh, i could let you know about what i thought about some of these albums and stuff especially the paul horn work so yeah well it's been my pleasure i seldom run into what i would consider a young man who knows music and the musicians from the 20s and the 30s you know i could say pine top smith and you went oh okay great sure <laughs> you know? sure yeah, on the piano. Yeah, I, yeah, sure. That that music was pretty. Um, when I first was, uh, when I first was, when I was in in school band early on, and and jazz band was ahead. Um, I started listening to that that music, and it was big band, and it was it was. Uh, so not a long story. So it was it was it was big band records my grandparents had, hmm. back to the twenties, and then to uh, a little bop, and then to like the Miles Chet, cool. Yeah kind of skip so you know but that's the thing about jazz being around that long that music yeah. being around for so long you can just pick from any kind of era 
and just go for that and then just go back and forward and then start right now. And, you know, one of the things about it that when somebody that I was listening to for the first time, maybe they were getting into it and they would listen to it and say maybe something from the 50s. Right. And, and you could tell them, well, you know, that was recorded in the 50s because it could have been recorded today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's not a lot of music like that, even rock and roll, you know, that it's that's older, right? Or right. revival, yeah. but with jazz, I mean, something from 1962 could have been recorded yesterday. So, yeah. anyway, like salt peanuts, yeah, exactly. Like that song, you listen to that song, and like, it, it, yeah, it's so fresh or kind of blue, just kind of blue, even like kind of blue could have recorded. You know, I know people cover those songs, but anyway, it's just there's a real timelessness to it, and and uh, and that's something that you know is 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 amazing. and very good to meet you. I've, I've seldom had so much fun. Likewise. This is a great talk. And uh, let's do this again, please. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your friend Craig Perdia comes in and visits uh, often. So I'd like to be able to do that too with you if that's okay. Well, I would love that. Uh, and next time we, we sit down and talk, be sure to get me to tell you how I met Benny Goodman one time. Yeah, please do. Uh, there's another connection yeah. to, to Tea Garden. And yeah. 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 Very cool. Richard, thank you. Thank you, Jason. Take care, man. You too. I'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thanks again to Richard for being on the program. It was great to speak with him and hope to have him on the podcast again soon. Uh, his most recent album is called Cloud Walker and the Ascent. You can find out more about his music at uh, several websites, relaxedmachinery.com, also on spottedpeckery.com, and on his Bandcamp page, zerohomes.bandcamp.com. You can find Tones and Drones on all the major podcast platforms and also on the NPR One app. And if you'd like to hear more music from this program, you can listen to the radio show version that airs on KBLU. It's called Tones and Drones Radio. It airs Sundays at 10 p.m. Central Time. You can stream the station at kblu.org. Again, thanks for listening to Tones and Drones. I'm Jason Miller, and may music bring you peace and joy.